Uh, as we mentioned at the very beginning of the service, if you missed it, uh, this is a Sunday we um, zero in on the subject of peacemaking. In Stride Toward Freedom, which is King's account of the Montgomery bus boycott, he wrote, quote, from the beginning, a basic philosophy guided the movement. Movement for equal rights. From the beginning, a basic philosophy guided it. The principle has since been referred to variously as nonviolent resistance, non-cooperation, and passive resistance. But in the first days of the protest, none of these expressions was mentioned. The phrase most often heard was Christian love. It was the Sermon on the Mount, rather than a doctrine of passive resistance that initially inspired the Negroes of Montgomery to dignified social action. It was Jesus of Nazareth that stirred the Negroes to protest with the creative weapon of love. I want to encourage us in the little bit of time that we have today to focus our attention on, um, and especially those maybe who aren't followers of Jesus or are kind of new to some of this, is to, to kind of um, put ourselves in the position of asking why. Why peacemaking? Why this way of, of Jesus? We can look to Dr. King and we can um, see that, oh, there must be something here that we can borrow from the Christian tradition about what it means to make peace. I've met very few people. They may have some nuanced disagreements with maybe the way King did things or parts of the nonviolent movement. But in general, I think most people cognitively assent to the idea of laying down your life and peacekeeping is generally a good idea, if not maybe naive and not practical all the time. But it's interesting in our world of sampling and buffet, we like to take a little bit of peacekeeping over here and take these little bits of the Christian story and then we kind of want to let the rest go. And you may be hearing me one of those people. Yeah, 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 of course, that. I mean, And we don't tend to ask the questions, well, what is it about, about the, the world and the way and the gospel that Dr. King, for instance, came up in? A system and an understanding of belief, a narrative about the way the world is, about who really the enemies are, what it means to exist in it, and what on earth Dr. King meant when he said over and over and over, I've been to the mountaintop, I've been to the mountaintop, I've been to the mountaintop, i.e. I know how this thing ends. His whole ministry rooted in a vision of actually eternal life in heaven pushed back into the current moment. So I want to encourage all of us, whether you are a devout follower of Jesus or brand new to all of this, to, to not just go, oh, I could take this little bit here and kind of leave the rest. Because like most things, there is an integrated worldview, an integrated way of seeing all of this. Anyone ever done the keto diet? No? Anyone familiar with the keto diet? Yeah, I tried it. It's I call it the bacon diet. It was really trendy last year, I remember. I haven't heard as much, but many people talk about it. It, it works. Like I have some friends who like just lost so much weight. It's unbelievable. But the diet like only works if you like follow it. Like, which I know is funny because like every diet is like that. But literally, this diet is about tricking your body into ketosis so that it begins to eat at your fat reserves. Which is why like you can't even the littlest bit of compromise apparently like throws off the whole system. So when I'm like trying to do the keto diet and just eating like straight bacon for like, that's literally what it is, like bacon and kale for like a week. Maybe I was doing it wrong. And then I get to Sabbath day and I eat a donut. It like sets the whole thing back and resets. And in a similar way, I think we want to talk about peacemaking and we don't want the good news and the gospel of Jesus that goes with it. And so I want to invite us to consider this. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you, 
Take your coat, give your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go a second mile. So before we start, a little context for Jesus' words. He is a Jewish rabbi. He is talking primarily to Jewish people, and they are under oppression by the Romans. Heavy, heavy, heavy taxation, probably upwards of about 80% on the poor. This group of people are oppressed. Jesus says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, turn the other one. We need to make sure we understand who he's writing to, people who have been colonized. We understand this in our culture uh, well, right? We are, our nation is literally built on, um, you could say genocide, you could frame it a number of different ways. But our entire nation is, is literally built on um, the, the, uh, the reality of we, we kind of come in in our history books and say things like, remember when the pilgrims discovered America? Right? So anyone um, who is a student of history knows that that's not a real thing. It's when the white Westerners happened to show up in a place that was already discovered. There are people living here, right? And so our nation understands, like Rome does, like many others. I'm not equating the U.S. with Rome. Don't, it got really quiet in here for a second. Right? But uh, we occupy the people, colonized them, and took them their land. That is our, that is our story. That's what we did. I only say that in that we understand, I think it's in the air. We, we understand what it is. We look around at the world and we can look at uh, various nations. I think it's always easier for us to point over there, look at those occupied people, look at those oppressors and how they're oppressing them. We need to recognize this is also part of our story. And so uh, one writer says it's really difficult to read the Bible when you are the person in power. The Bible is a tough book for folks who are on top of the heap. And so I humbly submit to us, whatever your journey, whatever your background, whatever your race or ethnicity, even now, just sitting here, we, we understand um, that this is part of the story of the land that we live in. And so as we do this, as we engage Jesus' words, he's talking to those under power. Jesus says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. So some historical background for this. When I first discovered this, Jesus became amazing and subversive and passive aggressive and actually super funny to me. So I, I hope you see just how, I mean, he's, I think he's worth following, Jews. <laughs> Jesus says, uh, so first of all, Jews, the right hand, still to this day in many uh, Middle Eastern countries, the right hand is the clean hand. It's used for eating. Uh, the right hand is used for handshakes. It's used for high-fiving sad Pats fans. It's, uh, it's the hand that you would use. It's literally called the clean hand. Though the left hand was used for the not polite stuff, things like wiping. That was the hand that you would use. So in a world where there's not a lot of hand sanitizer or washing stations everywhere you go, this was a very normal thing. Your right hand is your clean hand. Your left hand is your unclean hand. And again, to this day, uh, this still exists in many, many nations, this concept. So you would only strike someone with your right hand um, as otherwise you would be unclean. Even someone you were trying to strike, you would never use or engage this. It would make you look bad. You would use your right hand. So I need two volunteers. Two volunteers. I got one. One more. All right, come on up. I feel compelled to say give our volunteers a round of applause. I don't know why. <laughs> All right, so if you would stand here. What's your name? Sam. Sam. Andrew. Super nice to meet you. How you doing, man? All right, so you're going to stand here. All right? Great. You guys can introduce yourselves to one another if you like. <laughs> All right, so here's the picture that Jesus gives us. It's important to point out that Jesus says if someone hits you on the right cheek, 
So when we look at the scriptures, we always want to pay attention to details like this. Uh, Jesus is not just ran Matthew is not recounting this as some random detail. He says specifically, if someone hits you on the right cheek. So what I'd like you to do is with your right hand, you know your right hand is right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I want you to, you know, slow motion pretend rare unless you have some sort of deep-seated history and you really need to hit him. Um, I want you to punch him. Um, yeah, just go ahead and swing, punch him. There you go, excellent. Well done with the acting. Now, now what I want you to do is to try to punch him with your right hand on his right cheek. That's his left cheek, so can you punch him on his right yep. cheek? It's a little it's a little goofy, right? Here, try that one more time. Try to punch him with your right hand on his left cheek on his right cheek. Yeah. So it doesn't really work. How would you how would you hit him on his right cheek? You can't use your left hand. With your right hand, how would you hit him? You would go around. Interesting. That's never happened in this example before. No, but I love that. Can you think of another way if you were just standing there how you would hit him on his right cheek? Maybe. So one example might be, the only way if I'm going to come in and try to hit you, and if I'm going to hit your right cheek, because it says if someone hits you on the right cheek, not if someone hits you on the left, would be, actually, I need to go like this. The way that I hit you on the right cheek is I, I backhand you. That would be the way that happened. So now, if, if that were to happen, and you were to go and hit him, now if you were to turn to her, <laughs> turn to her your, 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 um, your left, I'm sorry, your right cheek. So all of a sudden, I'm sorry, turn your left cheek. <laughs> if you were to go in to slap him then, what would happen? Yeah, all of a sudden, if you were to go to try to hit him and he turns the other cheek, if you're slapping him, all of a sudden you have something sort of awkward going on here. So naturally I want to hit you here, but Jesus says if someone hits you on your right cheek, well, the only way that would happen is if I slapped you, turn to them the other cheek. So turn the other cheek. Now if I come in, i got to slap him in the face. It's just, all, it's just a little awkward. It's a little awkward. You can give, you can give a round of applause. Thank you, guys. Here's why, here's why I say this. Here's why I say this. You would, you're placing yourself in a position. Jesus is saying, look, when someone treats you like less than, when someone backhands you, when someone um, treats you like an inferior, the whole point of a backhanded slap was to reinforce the inequality between you. This is what a Roman does to a Jew. This is what somebody, a slave master, would do to a slave. They backhand them. Inferior status. When you turn, this puts the superior in a very difficult position. Because what am I then forced to do if I'm the oppressor? I'm forced to hit them. Like, a, it's not a backslap anymore. It's not like looking down at them. It all of a sudden, if they turn their, their, their cheek, I'm placed in an awkward position of slapping them dead center in the face. Now, it's funny. There's scholars that point out, like, it's interesting that Matthew references this, the right cheek, because what it seems to be that Jesus is doing is saying, you, you if you're being treated and dehumanized, make them at least hit you like an equal. Maybe. Turning the other cheek would be saying, try again. <laughs> I deny you the power to humiliate me. It's saying to the other person, actually, I'm a person too. 
you cannot demean thee. The next passage. If, you, if someone takes your coat, then give your shirt also. So remember, we're looking at 80% tax rates at this point. The Jews have been conquered. There's this big army which is in need of high revenues. This is why we see census all throughout history at this time, like the Christmas story. There's a census happening. They've overtaken the land. They want to know how many people are there, how they can tax them, how they can continue to make money, grow their army so they can do this to more people. People are losing their family lands due to taxation. People who are poor are having to get hired out hourly to work their own land. So these people are experiencing shame, humiliation, almost the guilt because of their story. And so imagine all that you have left is your coat. You're poor. And so in this little story, all the debtor has left is his out, would have been his outer garment, which would serve as a blanket at night. And then he has his linen undergarden garment or like a tunic. So the creditor comes and takes his coat. All the poor man has left is the shirt on his back. And so Jesus says to give them your shirt also. Anyone want to know why? Yeah. <laughs> We're engaged today. Because viewing in this culture, viewing the nakedness of another was shameful for the person that viewed it and the person that caused it. Of course, the person who's naked feels a bit embarrassed. But when Jesus says, you know what? If they take your jacket, the last thing you have on, just give them your inner garment. Just give them, give them the rest, making them naked, which immediately would put the person, the creditor, going, no, 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 put it back on, put it back on, put it back on. There was a, a, a cultural shame that we don't quite appreciate in this day and age, which would have been a deep shame of you caused that person to become naked. If someone takes your coat, give them your shirt also. So I need a couple volunteers for this one. <laughs> um, Jesus turned things upside down. The master would likely say, stop, put your clothes back on. The oppressed person now has, um, has some will engaged in this. The master is, is in an awkward position. The genius is that the aggressor maybe even may change his heart and give the coat back. I don't know. The debtor, though, stands before everyone and says, here, take everything. Now you have everything except my body. Will you take that next? Walter Wink says, the debtor turns the tables on the creditor, shaming him and also protesting against the whole economic system that caused the poor man's indebtedness in the first place. Interesting. Sneaky Jesus. <laughs> Lastly, <laughs> Jesus says, if I if demanded to walk one mile, then go another one. So sorry if this is all flashbacks to 12th grade history, but stay with me one last moment. In this Roman-occupied territory, there is a law called impressment. Can you say impressment? impressment? Impressment, among other things, allowed a Roman soldier to conscript a Jewish native to carry his equipment, which is not an easy task. A Roman's backpack would weigh about 100 pounds. So whoever was found on the street could basically be coerced to serve. Just like uh, Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry Jesus' cross. So the armies had to move to be moved with dispatch. So ranking military officials, they had slaves and donkeys to carry their packs. But the majority of troops would have to depend on civilians. So sometimes whole villages, there's these stories I was reading, would flee um, in order to not have to carry these military, not just the bags, but everything that went with it to another town. The majority of troops had to depend on civilians. Now... <clears throat> Rome has is, is done this before, 
And they know there's no need to overly incite violence from the people that you are occupying. And so they had what you could maybe consider a charitable law, which was a Roman soldier was not allowed under any circumstances to have a civilian carry their pack more than a mile. If a soldier violated the rules, there was like minor infractions that were left to the disciplinary control of the centurion, who was the commander of about 100 men or so. So he might find the offending soldier, flog them, uh, put them on a ration of barley instead of wheat. I don't know why there was an issue with barley, but uh, force him to stand all day before the general's tent holding a clod of dirt in his hands. That's a disciplinary technique working well with Harper. Uh, kidding. And if the offender was a, was a friend, it would issue a mild reprimand. But the point was that the soldier did not know what would happen next. So it's in this context of military occupation that Jesus speaks. He doesn't say revolt. He doesn't say befriend the soldier. He doesn't say, which was a normal thing, by the way, dr like drive a knife into his ribs. There's all sorts of documentation about the revolutionary, some of the zealots that they would do. Yeah, take the pack a mile, take it about halfway through, lead them, as they're leading you, once you're in a space where not a lot of people are gonna see you, here's how you conceal your knife, and here's how you stab them underneath the armor. Like, this is the world that we're living in, because remember, these people are fed up with the Roman oppression. Jesus doesn't say that. The law is resented by the rebels, people trying to undercut and fight against the Roman Empire, and Jesus says, essentially, don't resist. So if you then walked another mile, imagine the soldier's surprise at the next mile marker when he reluctantly reaches to assume you're going to give him his pack, and the civilian says, no, nah, let me carry that. Like, you're walking along. And you're coming to that mile marker, and you're like, ready. Obviously, this guy doesn't want to carry my pack. And he just turns and goes, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I'll just keep going. It puts a soldier in an incredibly like, awkward position. No, 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 I'm going to take the pack. No, no, I got you, buddy. I got you, buddy. Just let it go. Like, just for a moment, what you're doing is, is confusing things. Like, will the civilian file a complaint? Are they just being kind? Are they trying to get him disciplined? This is why I say I think Jesus is kind of funny. All of these things, which could look like passivity, are actually sort of passive-aggressive in the sense of the word. Jesus is not inviting them to strike back. He's not inviting them to like, I don't know, Jesus gave my spine to someone else. No, 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 Jesus seems to be showing us like he often does a third way. You've heard it said, but I say. I know it appears to me this is how the world has changed, but let me show you something different. Walter Wink calls this third way theology. What Jesus is doing is sparking a movement that if I had time, we could walk through redemptive history from the resurrection to Dr. King and beyond, sparking a movement of prophetic imagination. This word imagination is critical. Because I gotta assume at some point the Roman soldiers have caught on. Like, all right, why are you think uh, these guys do this whole like walk a second mile thing? Here's what you do to deal with this. Yeah, there's like a bunch of these like like Jewish folks that are like they're doing this whole turning the cheek thing and making it kind of awkward to hit them. Just don't worry about it, just hit them straight on anyway. Really, it's not like this was like the game plan to like solve human history. No, this was the spark. This was the principle. This was the this was the opening like bell. I'm like, here's how we're going to engage in the world. He's giving us a picture of what it looks like to, in one way, honor the image of God in the oppressor. To give them an opportunity 
to maybe turn, to maybe change. And the big thing is, and this is something that we desperately, I think, need to hear in our world more than ever, is you don't become the very thing that you're fighting against. We don't become the very monster that we want to see slain. We don't use the tactics that the enemy uses. This is not the way of Jesus. We could go big, like every 17-year-old kid in a terrorist camp, and why he all of a sudden feels compelled to like train to get into an airplane and fly it into a building. What causes that? Well, it wasn't because he was like treated really well and experienced no violence in his life. No, there's a lot of research that shows most of the like strongest terrorist camps come, terrorist attacks come and are rooted from violence that has been done to them. You, you, there, there is a, in the same way, there is a, a long history of violence, thinking that violence could be redemptive. I humbly submit to you, and I think this is in line with the way of Jesus, that the idea of redemptive violence is a myth. It's a myth. And so whether we're talking about terrorism, or whether we're talking about our gossipy neighbor, or our parent, or our child, or our friend who feels like an enemy, the way of Jesus is inviting us to not fight the way the world fights and to leave room for the other. Uh, I love to always point out uh, that if we didn't think, for instance, like a, 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 a terrorist couldn't come to know the redemptive work and grace of Jesus and love, if we didn't believe that could happen, we as followers of Jesus would, would have to pretty much destroy most of the New Testament. We would have to rip it out of our Bibles because m most of the New Testament is written by terrorists, by Paul, who is systematically killing Christians. We just have to be honest about that. And so that's why we, are, we get confused, hopefully you get confused, as far as Jesus, when we look around seeing people in the name of Jesus, not having the, the wherewithal and the, 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 the power to, to look out and go, no one's beyond redemption. Even if you're here and you have a hard time with all the metaphysical ideas around God and Christianity and faith and what, all that stuff, just to look at the tradition. There's no other tradition that, that has this sort of interesting little note in it. Like if, in other words, if anybody should have a real clear, deep understanding that no one is beyond redemption, it should be Christians. I would humbly like an amen. Amen. <laughs> And so I was reminded on the way over here talking to Jocelyn, like, oh, it's fun to talk about that when we're thinking about politics and the big things up here. But I'm also talking about the person you can't stand and you haven't been able to move to some place of forgiveness and love and grace with. Now, forgiveness and boundaries and all these things, we need to talk about them and we've talked about them and we'll continue to talk about them. But the reality of how we wage peace in this world is critical. Let me be clear about this passage. It takes quite a spine to turn the other cheek. It takes phenomenal fortitude to love your enemy. And it takes firm resolve to pray for those who persecute you. This is not an invitation to weakness as the world knows it. But to a kind of strength that is far more robust than dropping the proverbial bomb on somebody. Jesus commands us to hold out the possibility 
that the aggressor, the gossip, the jerk, the political party may have a change of heart. The third way honors the image of God in your enemy. Is there a third way that you need to engage today? There are ways you can do things differently to live gently in a violent world. This is part of the countercultural way of what it means to follow Jesus, and it's hard. It's hard. I want to invite you to turn for a moment to Luke 19. I just want to read one more passage that I feel like is critical for our, our time and place here as we begin to go to the communion table. This is Jesus setting up for palms. This is like the Palm Sundays uh, moment, if you're familiar with the, the Bible. Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the last time. He's about to go to his death. Uh, the Romans are parading in from the other side of the city. And um, the, basically the crowd waiting for Jesus to roll in all pretty much think that he is going to like make Israel great again. Like he is going to make, he is going to ascend to the throne. He is going to like, I bring people together, whether it's in some powerful spiritual way, or he's literally going to like build a, a revolt, like the Maccabean revolt that had happened 50 years before. Jesus is going to lead, like most leaders lead, and we are going to take Rome down. And he knows this, he sees this, he's hearing their cries, there's so much going on. And then we get this little insight into what Jesus is feeling and thinking. And he says this, as he's literally weeping over the city, if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. And he begins to share with them, like, this is not going to go well for you. If, if there's ever a verse for our cultural moment, I want to submit to you, this is it. If only you had recognized this day the things that make for peace. In other words, there's a lot of different things that can make for peace or that can attempt to, or that appear to bring temporary peace. But Jesus, like he always is claiming, is I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm just trying to be specific here. If you want to know what will lead to peace, then, then, then you need to pay attention. If you want to know, if only you had known that it wasn't going to be military overthrow that is going to lead to peace in this situation. And so we need to ask this question of ourselves as we engage our world, as we engage our neighborhood, as we engage the relationships in our life. The places where there is tension, the places where there is violence in our heart. Are we aware of the things that make for peace? I think of how certain aspects of, our, of the Christian community will throw their weight upon a political figure or a particular political party. But that will be the thing. That will be the thing. And Jesus just has such harsh words for that thinking. This will not be the way that peace and flourishing and grace is brought to the world. And so we end with the cross and we end with the communion table. Because it's here on the cross, like it says in Colossians, it's here at the table where we read, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That God wants us to be whole. That God on the cross is basically, this is like a big picture of these three little stories he just told us. Someone comes at you, turn the other cheek. Someone comes at you, or someone tries to sue you, like just give them, give them everything. Someone wants to 
uh, treat you like an inferior and have you take your pack for a mile, take it to subvert the system. We're told that Jesus made a spectacle of the powers on the cross. In other words, he exposed just how depraved the systems of the world and violence are on the cross. He's like, you can bring everything to me and at me. Everything. All that you have, you can, you can throw at me. And then he rises from the dead, sparking a movement that is larger than ever. And when faithful is a force of peacemaking in the world has never seen. He, in this moment, he says, you can throw the worst at me, the worst at me. And this will not win. Love will, will win. What will win it is not you becoming a murderer, but becoming a martyr. What will win is this larger story. I've been to the mountaintop. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to bow before the Prince of Peace. The violence of this world, the violence of this world, the violence uh, in, in race relations in this country. Like There's an invitation. There's an invitation before us to wage peace in a way that brings, and in a way that Christ is faithful to the cross. When we look to the cross, we hear him saying, making peace through his blood. Peace being shalom, being right with God and right with yourself and right with each other, everything being in its right place. That we, as we take the bread and the cup and are reminded that God has made peace with us, that God has restored when we become aware of the unmerited grace and love he has for us, the question always is, how could it not then turn toward everyone else around us? How could it not provoke us to greater love and grace and beauty? How could it not provoke us and move us outward? Yes, if we really trust the grace of God and trust what he's done on the cross, it should provoke a peacemaking movement in the confines of our small little world and moving out into the brokenness and violence we see around us. As the church experiences shalom together, he works inside us, bonding us together, inviting us to reconcile all things. In a world where one, people do not, one billion people don't have clean drinking water, 2.5 don't have adequate sanitation, 780 to 800 million people are hungry due to no food, 2.2 um, Children live in poverty, have an absence of basic necessities. Two billion, no electricity. 80% live in substandard housing. One billion cannot read or sign their name. Or the wealthiest 1% have the same net worth as the poorest 57%. Like, one billion people live off at less than a dollar a day. This is not shalom. This is not shalom. This is not peace. We are to be peacemakers, reconcilers. People with prophetic imagination, implementers of this victory on the cross where he has made peace, where he has shown us the worst the world can throw at you, the work of the kingdom, the kingdom of peace will prevail. And so we fight. We look at the violence of the world and we fight. And we know as the scripture reminds us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's against the evil and the schemes of brokenness and sin and injustice and the violence of racism and the violence of poverty. We are invited to fight. Dr. King reminds us darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can. This is the call 
of the peacemaker in the way of Jesus. Tim Keller says, if a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, he will do justice, not wrath. If a person doesn't love their enemy and reveals that at best they don't understand the grace they have experienced, and at worst they have not really encountered the saving mercy of God. Grace should make you loving. Grace should make you a peacemaker, period. And so I want to invite you as we in a moment stand up and we take the bread and we dip it in the cup we remember this, this act of peacemaking is what Christ has done for us on the cross made peace with us dead in our sin enemies of God I, I love it it's like the whole thing is set up we think about that passage we were enemies of God and God reconciled us like we would choose death over and over but he reconciled us I always find it just unbelievable when anybody does not make room in their heart for the enemy. I know it's hard to do that, but literally part of the Christian story at its most basic, biblical, literal at its root is that we were enemies of God. God so loved us, poured his unmerited favor and love and grace upon us. And so if anybody knows what it is to be saved by grace, it's us. And so how could we not It would take such gymnastics and avoidance of the very gospel to not be people who are interested in every step of the way to wage peace. So we come to this table where we see his body broken and his blood poured out. The bread and the cup. We dip the bread in the cup and we are reminded of the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior. And I just, I pray, I had this image coming over here of like, as the bread's dipped in the cup, like names are coming to mind. Like people and situations where God is inviting you, inviting you to love, inviting you to make peace, inviting you to engage, inviting you to leave room. And that there are some of us who, who maybe have been sold um, an understanding of the Christian way that somehow takes things like racial reconciliation or systemic injustice and said that's not really a gospel issue. Um, We believe the Bible here, so we know that's not true. I mean that with every ounce of snark I could muster. And so I say that, and that maybe for some of you, you need to hear Jesus' words and see not passivity. No, no, no. See a resolve to stand up. Maybe there are places where you're being dehumanized. Are you being pushed down? Are you being invited to be a part of the solution of helping bring justice into the world? And so Jesus is inviting us to join him, he says, in the renewal of all things. And this is one way that we do this. So may we, as the body, take the bread and the cup. May we be open to what God might bring up in our hearts. Maybe before we even take the bread and the cup, we need to to make sure we write down a name or a situation. Maybe some of you have something in your heart where like, I need to start something. God's been inviting me to join that organization or start an outpost here at Sanctuary. Start a mission. Start a ministry. Like, name that. Lock that in before you come up. Put it on a high card. Like, remind yourself to follow up and take that next step. But our church here on the east side might be known as peacemakers. And when there is conflict in our city, we might hear, man, we gotta call, we gotta call the Christians. And this begins with us. This begins in our hearts. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us people who, who lose track. 
Lord, we lose track of what we are here to do and be about. Lord, I pray, God, that you would um, you would remind us, Lord, those of us who are here, we're followers of Jesus. You would remind us in this moment of our story of being loved and saved and rescued and redeemed. Father, you might provoke in us. You might reveal in us the places where we demean, the places where we judge, the places where we exert unhealthy power over, places where we chastise and condemn our enemy instead of praying for them and blessing them. As we come to the table, Lord, would you wake our souls to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, pray. Amen.